Hello, patrons. It's Rose, obviously. Um, it's the bonus podcast for the week of September 2nd, which was Labor Day in the United States. Um, yesterday's episode was about crime scene forensics. Um, those of you who are eagle-eyed slash eared may have noticed that yesterday's episode went up later than it usually does. Normally, I schedule them to go up at midnight um, the night before Pacific time. So that's like 3 a.m. Eastern time. Um, so hopefully they're like ready for you when you commute. And if you are in Europe or somewhere else, you know, there's sort of like still a reasonable time um, when they come out. Uh, yesterday's did not, that did not happen. Um, in part because, well, not just in part and completely because I decided to do an interview yesterday morning for yesterday's episode because I cannot help myself. Um, but I really, really wanted to talk to Kelly Kulik, who was Lucas's defense attorney, um, public defender. Um, so we went back and forth, uh, last week about her doing an interview and she couldn't because she was in court, um, representing someone in a capital homicide trial, uh, which is very important and good work. So my podcast does not take precedence there. Um, so she was able to do it yesterday morning at 9am my time. So I did the interview at 9am, uh, Pacific time, got it all cut together and out the door into the podcast uh, by 1 p.m. my time. So that's like a pretty fast turnaround. Um, but I'm really glad I did it because she was great. And it was really good to hear from her about what that case was like sort of firsthand um, and not just me talking about it. Um, so yeah, so that that's sort of why the episode went up a little late. This week's episode, uh, I will say, very much freaked me out, honestly. Um, I research a lot of scary stuff, I guess, for the show. But for some reason, this one in particular got me like up at night thinking about this stuff. Um, and I actually, I bought a yoga mat last week. Uh, and when I, it was a used one, like at a Goodwill. And when I unrolled it, there was, um, like what definitely looks like a blood stain on it. Um, I am not planning on using it for yoga. Um, you can hear about what it's for. If you stick around at the end of the episode, uh, it's part of the secret this week. Um, but I immediately saw that. And instead of being like grossed out, I was like, Oh no, I'm going to be accused of a murder. Um, I don't know how they would trace the yoga mat to me from the goodwill, but whatever. Um, this bonus podcast has a bunch of stuff in it. Um, so I'm going to play you things I cut from this episode. Then we're going to do a quick back to the future update about space junk with a special guest. Um, then I'm going to talk a little bit about upcoming flash forward stuff and a big exciting milestone for the show. And then uh, I'll end with what I'm reading and a secret as always. So let's just jump right into it. Uh, we have a lot of stuff today. So let's go to the stuff that I cut from today's episode. I cut a lot of stuff out. There was just so many interesting things and so many cool conversations that I had with the guests that I couldn't include for time. Um, so let's just like get right into it. So the first big chunk of things that I cut all had to do with fingerprinting and fingerprints. Um, so I mentioned in the episode that fingerprints as a form of ID probably started in Asia. Um, but how it came to the West is actually super interesting. So let's start there. For centuries and maybe even millennia, fingerprints had been used in parts of Asia, including India and China, and I think Japan. Um, I think we found it on ceramics, so I think it was used as a kind of signature on artworks and possibly as a kind of signature in other contexts as well. People used fingerprints as an identity mark in Asia for a long time, long before the West did. And then colonialism happened. There's this colonial administrator called William Herschel who was stationed in Bengal who first started noticing the use of fingerprints and thought that perhaps fingerprints could be used in kind of state bureaucratic 
systems as a form of identification. So it's the 1850s, and William Herschel started gathering up fingerprints from the local people. And for many years, he tried to um, get his superiors interested in using fingerprints, and nobody listened to him. And then he retired, moved back to England. And when he moved back to Britain, he brought this fingerprint collection with him because he still really thought that he could make this fingerprinting thing happen for the government. And then when he retired, he asked someone who was uh, who was there if they could go back to that same village years later and collect the fingerprints of the same people. And they did it. And what he found was that the fingerprints of these people, they hadn't changed. They were stable over time. And that was unknown to Western scientists at the time. And Herschel's idea that you could use these fingerprints as identification marks took off and actually made its way back to India. They were using it in India initially on uh, sort of benefits to make sure that the same person didn't show up to claim the same benefits, pretending to be two different people. There's kind of a cool parallel here, actually, to India today. Last year on the Universal Basic Income episode, we talked a tiny bit about the system called Aadhaar. Aadhaar is a biometric identification system that they're using in India, and it uses fingerprints and iris scans to connect people to their government profiles for when they collect public benefits. Absolutely. So you could say India has been kind of at the cutting edge of biometrics for a really long time. Now, today we, or at least I, kind of assume that fingerprints are a pretty good way of identifying someone. Um, But did you know that we actually don't know if every person's fingerprints are unique? I, like, thought that was a given. Turns out it's not. Um, Here's Rachel Brooks, the chemist from this week's episode, talking about that. There's lots of arguments over whether that has actually been tested to make that level of claim. To say that no two p- fingerprints are the same implies that you have a zero, first of all, that, that that's true, that statement. And then it may further go on to assume that there's, there's never been a mismatch or some type of an error. Uh, and first of all, the assertion that no two fingerprints are the same is a, is a bold claim. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and one that, you know, how would you test that? And can you get to a point where you could actually say, OK, well, based on this sample size uh, that, you know, this has this mismatch has has never occurred. Uh, we don't really know that uh, there have been, you know, some studies that say, well, out of this many comparisons, there has never been a miscomparison. But that's not the same as saying no two fingerprints are the same in the history of human being, right? Like that's a different, because that's a different level of assertion. Also, there is a difference between having someone's full set of fingerprints, like all 10 fingers, and just getting a partial print or a fraction of a print. One of the cases that really gets talked about a lot is is Brandon Mayfield. Uh, And that was kind of put fingerprints really on kind of the forefront And I would just say whenever someone says something about, you know, well, fingerprints are kind of like the bedrock, right? We we often do kind of think that, definitely feel that fingerprints are kind of decided and there's, you know, no issue. Um, And I would answer to that would be I, I would have bought into that before Brandon Mayfield. 
So who is Brandon Mayfield? I cut his story out of the episode because I never have enough time. But here's the gist. In 2004, there was a coordinated attack on the Madrid commuter transit system. So 10 different explosives went off during rush hour, and they killed 193 people and injured over 2,000 others. Um, Here in the U.S., we talk a lot about 9-11. And in Madrid, they have actually a similar abbreviation for this attack. It's called 11M, since it happened on March 11th. Um, About a month after the attack, the FBI arrested an American guy named Brandon Mayfield because they had found a match between his fingerprints and prints found on a bag of detonators involved in the attacks. Um... Long story short, Brandon Mayfield had nothing to do with this attack, but the FBI ran with this connection and they created this whole story around Brandon Mayfield and how he was involved, just like they did with Lucas Anderson. So they homed in on the fact that Mayfield had converted to Islam after meeting his wife, who was an Egyptian. And Brandon Mayfield was an attorney, he was a lawyer, and he had represented one of the so-called Portland Seven, which was a group of men who tried to travel to Afghanistan and join al-Qaeda and the Taliban and sort of fight against the U.S. And so they had built this whole story about how he was involved in these attacks in Madrid that was completely false. Um, A later review found that the FBI had grossly mishandled the case and really like ran with such scant evidence. And in fact, um, if you look at the fingerprints, there was good good reason to question whether they were even a match to begin with. Um, But it all started with this fingerprint. And it gets to that point that Kelly made about how, you know, investigators and the public and jurors and judges you know, they will really latch on to some sort of forensic, sciencey sounding or science-seeming clue when there's all this other evidence that that maybe isn't right. I mean, this is a person that was arrested, held, you know, held um, on, I think, a couple million dollars bond. This was a federal level case. I mean, it was it was the worst, absolute worst case scenario in, in that kind of way. And it led to a real rethink on that type of analysis and what you can say and how confident people report results. Okay, so that is fingerprinting. Um, Now we get to move on to the Fourth Amendment. So I promised to talk about this 2013 Supreme Court case that basically said that fingerprints and DNA are the same. They have the same privacy concerns. Mary Grot Leary, the woman at the very end of the episode that you hear talking about the legal side, you know, she thinks that's not correct. um, And I sort of agree, even though my opinion doesn't matter because I'm not a lawyer. Um, But I'm going to have Mary explain the case because it's a little bit complicated. But here's basically what the case said. There is a database where um, where DNA samples are collected um, that is uh, run. um, It's called CODIS, C-O-D-I-S. And so um, uh, uh, that's a database with DNA. So what some states started doing many years ago is have provisions where if someone is convicted of a crime, so they are now a convicted felon, part of what would happen is they would submit to a check swab and their DNA would, a cheek swab, excuse me, they would submit to a cheek swab and their DNA would go into a database. And the courts upheld that because once you're a convicted felon, your Fourth Amendment rights are less than what they are before you're convicted. A very interesting case came up called Marilyn v. King a few terms ago in which um, Marilyn had a very complex statute, but it, it took DNA, took a cheek swab as part of the booking process for certain very serious felonies. So not everyone who was arrested, but um, people were arrested on certain crimes. 
And this was quite controversial because you're not dealing with someone who has been convicted of a crime. You're dealing with someone who has only been arrested. And so the case went up to the Supreme Court as to whether or not that was proper. And ultimately, the Supreme Court, they had a choice. They could either have sort of examined this case as a search, you know, as a real Fourth Amendment search, um, which it clearly is, um, but looked at it through that lens and privacy protection. Or they could have looked at it as a booking procedure just like fingerprints. There's no warrant required for fingerprints uh, when someone's arrested. That's part of the booking and identification procedure. There aren't Fourth Amendment implications for that. And the Supreme Court in Maryland versus King decided this was really more like fingerprints, and they upheld this Maryland statutory scheme that did collect this DNA. There were lots of other limits on it, to be fair, this Maryland statute, but um, it had gone further than other jurisdictions had gone. And now um, that statutory scheme allows any other state who wants to implement that scheme to get the DNA of people who are just arrested for certain felonies as long as they follow the other procedures. The other sort of small thing I cut out of today's episode was a conversation with Mary about why some people think that we should have a national database where everybody has to give the government their DNA so you can be either ruled out or ruled in in these cases where they find DNA evidence. And then the other piece is it's the government. Right. So what are the implications if law enforcement has DNA information which might reveal genetic codes about risk of disease and then we have a government healthcare system, for example? Right. How do we keep those things separate? Because you can see outside of the criminal realm, the government having this information could have implications in a host of ways. Um, so I think that that's something that we're going to have to think about in the future as well. Yeah, I, you, there was a line where you mentioned in in one of the pieces I read where you talked about how some people want a like you know just be, everybody should have their DNA in a government database, and I immediately was like, no, yeah. no, <laughs> you, I don't like yeah. that at all. That makes me so uncomfortable. No, I don't. I don't <laughs> like that at all. But you can see, I mean, and some of the people that suggest this are you know serious scholars, but they're just saying that wouldn't this just be easier, <laughs> et cetera. Um, A world in which the government keeps a catalog of everybody's DNA on file is definitely not a future that I want to live in for all the reasons that Mary talked about. And just, you know, that requires you really trusting your government and law enforcement. Um, And I think that, you know, if Lucas Anderson's case is any indication, there are some huge questions, right, about what these matches might even mean. Um, Okay, those are all the things I cut. Um... Now on to a very special segment that I'm calling Back to the Future. I guess you guys aren't ready for that yet. This is something that I do in the Patreon newsletter, but I want to kind of um, bring it into the bonus podcast where we talk a little bit about updates to an episode, um, a past episode from Days of Yore. Uh, And today's update is about space junk. And I was just going to tell you about this myself. But today, I did an interview for a future episode, next week's episode, with someone who has been covering this particular story quite closely. Um, So I figured at the end of our interview today, I would just ask her about it and have her talk to you about it. So here you go. Uh, The latest space junk news from Lauren Grush, the senior space reporter at The Verge. 
Can I ask you really quickly two questions about sure. the satellite, the SpaceX collision avoidance story? Oh, yeah. I just That's the thing I just updated. <laughs> oh, okay. 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 Yeah. Um, because I, I did an episode a while back about uh, space junk, and um, I wanted to do a quick up- update for listeners on the like bonus podcast. And since I have you on the phone, I thought maybe it would be fun to ask you a couple questions about it. Like, super yeah, quick. perfect. Yeah. Um, so, like, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> So I think it's hilarious, to be honest. Um, it looks, from what I've gathered, uh, last week before the Labor Day weekend, um, the European Space Agency realized that they had um, a more than normal chance of hitting one of one of their satellites had a more than normal chance of hitting one of um, SpaceX's Starlink satellites, and this is one of the sixty satellites that. The company launched um, earlier this year to start their big mega constellation that will um, beam internet connectivity down to Earth. And uh, so ESA contacted SpaceX about it. And, and at the time that ESA contacted the company, the risk was relatively low, still higher than normal, but not enough to warrant any kind of maneuver. And so SpaceX said that they just didn't have any plans to move the satellite at that time. But as the week progressed, ESA realized that the probability of a contact between the two satellites was actually much higher than they thought. And it got it eventually got to a place where the probability was um, more than one in uh, 10,000, which is the threshold for when you usually move a satellite, if there is going to be um, a conjunction. And so ESA kept trying to contact SpaceX, and SpaceX just didn't respond to them. And, and ESA has told me they were contacting them daily. And so eventually, ESA made the call that, like, look, we're just going to move the satellite because we haven't heard from SpaceX and it's not going anywhere. So they ended up boosting the satellite's orbit on Monday, Labor Day here in the U.S., and uh, I think it was just like 300 meters just to to get it out of the way. And so eventually everyone was like, okay, why didn't SpaceX respond? Um, What were they doing? Uh, I think one initial report said that they refused to move their satellite, which seemed kind of fishy. But then I got in contact with SpaceX, and they essentially said that a bug in their on-call paging system prevented them from getting updates from ESA about the um, higher probability of a collision. And um, from what it sounds like, it's like they just didn't get the email. <laughs> Which is not funny, because I mean, if they had collided, it would have been a bad, bad scenario. But, um, but then I also was curious, because... The thing I found out today, um, the Air Force is also responsible for giving out what's known as like conjunction warnings. And basically, there is their data that tells you whether or not um, two satellites have a higher probability of colliding. And that's what ESA used to calculate their probability that these two satellites might collide. And so the Air Force said it issued conjunction warnings to both SpaceX and ESA, and I wanted to know exactly how many. And um, essentially, the Air Force told me that they sent ESA 32 of these messages, and SpaceX received 29. <laughs> so but, so they got them. I mean, that's what I don't know. I've, I'm still trying to hear back from SpaceX, so this could change between now and when you update, but um, I asked them if they received those 
messages from the Air Force or if the same bug that prevented them from receiving ESA's email maybe also pre present, prevented them from receiving the conjunction warnings from the Air Force because the Air Force told me that they do send these via email. So it's possible that SpaceX email folder is just as atrocious as mine and they need a better, uh, better way of getting communication. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Or it's just like, oh, I didn't I didn't see that email. Like, I yeah, feel like <laughs> part of me is like, really? <laughs> I mean, I can relate. My email inbox is a, is a nightmare. So, <laughs> yeah. But it is also like, I don't know if they had collided. That's like very bad. And to have it all just be like going into an email inbox just feels like there's got to be a better way for this. Right. And that's exactly that's exactly what Issa told me over the phone. I was like, you know, I was asking them what they thought this illustrated. And they kind of use this instance to. Um, promote a new type of um, a new type of you know warning system or communication system, and they're basically saying I think email is just not the way to handle these issues. Like we need to come up with some better system um, because ESA wanted to communicate. They just and SpaceX wasn't. As, I mean, as SpaceX says they weren't intentionally ignoring ESA. They just didn't get the email. So yeah. Okay, that is that. Check. Moving on. Now onto the segment about behind the scenes, about flash forward and sort of like what's happening next. So next week uh, is the last crime episode of the season. I will be recording the voiceover potentially in a hotel room in Portland, Oregon, because um, that's where I'm going to be this weekend uh, for XOXO Fest. If anyone's going to be there, say hello. I have, have pins and stickers and I think magnets also probably. So come find me if you're there. Um, next mini season is Power. Um, I have a bunch of them set. I have a, you know a whole long list and I have a couple that I definitely know that I'm doing. But if you have ideas that you want to hear about in terms of the theme of power, um, tell me about them. I love hearing ideas from listeners. I think for this mini season, I might do an episode about time travel. Um, we actually have not covered time travel at all on this show, even though it is called Flash Forward. So it may be time. Um, and next season. Oh, and um, on next season, during next season, on November 12th, it is the 100th future for Flash Forward. So it's not the 100th episode, technically, because there are a couple episodes that were like mini episodes or like teasers or whatever. Um, but it is the 100th proper future episode, um, which is very exciting. Uh, and I feel like I should do something for the 100th episode, but I don't know what to do. Maybe I'll make like a poster of all of the different illustrations from the last four years, or I don't know. I'll, I have to figure out something to do. Um, if you have ideas for what I should do, like have a party, I don't know, make a cake. Maybe I'll make a future cake. I don't know. What is a future cake? I have no idea. It's got like space ice cream or whatever. Um, yeah, I have no idea what I should do, but I do feel like I should mark it in some way um, and do something special. So if you have any ideas, uh, I would love to know what you think that I should do for the 100th Flash Forward episode. Um, I'm feeling very proud of getting to 100. Um, Flash Forward is like a huge amount of work to produce. Um, there are shows that can like be weekly and have that work. And like, that's not the case for Flash Forward. So getting to 100 is, I feel very, like very proud of it. Um, and I do feel like I should do something, but I don't know what. Um, so yeah, so I'd, I'd love to know what you think. Um, okay. Now on to the sort of last two things I try to do on all of these bonus podcasts, uh, what I'm reading and then a secret. So currently I am reading, um, the book club book pick, which is how long till black future month by MK Jemison. It's a book of short stories. The other two things that I'm like actively reading right now 
are um, this book called On Trend by Devin Powers. Um, it's called On Trend, The Business of Forecasting the Future. And Devin is a researcher who I've sort of followed for a while and who I think is super, super smart. And it's this really great kind of like critical and deep look at you know, what we talk about when we talk about future forecasting. Um, if you follow my work in other places, you know that I'm like kind of critical of a lot of the sort of like futurism industrial complex that exists in the world. Um, a lot of futurists are basically just consultants for like mega bazillion dollar companies and like teach Coca-Cola how to make more money in the future. And that's just like not something that I think is ethical or interesting. Um, and Devin has this really great, she just has this really great analysis of like what this world looks like, what the sort of economics are, what the business model is here for these people. And so I'm really enjoying the book and I think it's really interesting. Um, and so I am excited. I'm hoping, I'm trying to figure out a reason to interview Devin about the book. Um, it comes out soon. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll force our book club into reading it. <laughs> um, and as your benevolent overlord of the Flash Forward book club. Um, but I do, I mean, it's also kind of wonky and something that like maybe only I'm interested in, but it's really interesting. I like it a lot. Um, the other book that I'm reading is um, a book called Cyborg Detective by Jillian Weiss, and it's a book of poems, actually. Um, and Jillian Weiss wrote this essay that I'm somewhat obsessed with and I send to like everybody because I think it's such a smart way of thinking about this idea of a cyborg. Um, the essay is called Common Cyborg, and it's published in Granta, and I will link to it in the show notes. Um, and she's um, a disabled woman, an amputee, and she sort of like talks about the ways in which sort of like a lot of futurism media and a lot of just the media in general kind of like fetishize this idea of like the cyborg as this cool, sexy thing. And like when you are actually a cyborg, often you're like a disabled person whose experience of your, say, prosthetic limb is like not as sexy as they make it seem on, you know, movies or in these kinds of like cyberpunky, you know, fictional worlds. Um and so she's just really interesting. And the the book of poems is really cool. And it's, um, you know, poetry is not a form I read that often. So I, I feel like I take a lot longer to read it. But the book is relatively short and I'm really enjoying it so far. So um, that's called Cyborg Detective by Jillian Weiss. Um, okay, that's what I'm reading. And now for, oh, yes, The Secret. Okay, The Secret does involve uh, the yoga mat that I mentioned earlier. So my partner, Robert, who you've heard from in some of the episodes, uh, most notably probably in the one about the exercise drug in which he tries to convince me not to take a drug that I ordered on the internet um, and fails. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, actually, I should ask him if I can tell you this. Hold on. Okay, I have received permission to tell you this. Um, so my partner, Robert, who you heard in that episode, uh, had knee surgery recently, um, yesterday morning. And I am going out of town tomorrow for this conference for XOXO Fest. And we have a dog. And our house that we live in does not have a direct door from our house to the backyard. And so to take the dog to the backyard, you have to put her leash on her, you know, take her out the side, walk down the driveway, Put her into the backyard. Um, we put a leash on her because there's a cat that likes to lay in our yard or in our driveway, and our dog would love to eat that cat, and I would prefer for that not to happen. So we just put a leash on her. It's fine. Anyway, I was really worried, or I am, have been really worried about me being gone and Robert having to do crutches plus leash plus dog 
to get to the backyard. Um, and we like can't, we don't own our house, so we can't like put a doggy door in. Um, and so what we did was we went to the salvage yard near our house, um, and bought a used children's slide for $10. And we basically propped it up in the window of the bedroom so we can open up the window and there's now a slide that goes from the window out into the backyard. Um, this is all great. Going down is fine. She can't get back up it <laughs> because it's a slide. And so she very valiantly tried our dog, very, very valiantly tried to like scrabble her way back up and that was not working. So we went to the Goodwill, bought a used yoga mat, cut it in half and then used spray adhesive and sort of like made a little ramp on the slide for her to walk up and down. And so now she can gum up and down as she pleases. Um, and that was fun. And it looks ridiculous on the back of our house. Um, and that yoga mat has this stain on it that every time I see it, I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> what is that? Um, that doesn't really matter because it's really just for the dog. Um, so yeah. Um, okay. That is my secret. Uh, we now have a weird yellow slide. I posted photos of it on my Instagram if you want to see the dog going up and down the slide. Um, and that's it. That is my secret um, for this week. So next week is the last episode of the crime mini season. And then again, another break. Um, and then we're back November 5th um, for the next little mini season power um, but yeah, you can hear from me next week with the last of the crime ones and, uh, yeah, have a great rest of your week, uh, or rest of whatever, depending on when you listen to this and I will talk to you soon. Okay. Bye.